So Nestlings is about this young couple, Anna and Reed, uh, and they have a one-year-old daughter, almost one-year-old daughter, Charlie, uh, and they've just been through a run of absolute shit luck. Like they, it, it takes place now. It takes place in like 2023. They've just been through the pandemic in New York city of all places. And, and you know, that, uh, that got rid of, of their income in a lot of respects. Their, their money has been affected. They're, they're traumatized by having lived through the pandemic in the city. Family members have died. Some of their favorite people have died. Uh, they're living in a, a horrible uh, apartment that they're kind of stuck in at the moment. And worst of all, the uh, birth of Charlie was incredibly complicated. Uh, and it wound up exacerbating this, uh, this old injury that Anna had during the labor. Uh, and uh, she's found herself having to use a wheelchair. She's paralyzed from the waist down. She's dealing with severe depression from uh, from her injury and from her change of lifestyle that that has entailed. She's dealing with postpartum depression. Reed is dealing with depression as a caretaker, which he is not very well suited for. It's just everything has just been absolute fucking garbage. Uh, and suddenly out of the blue, their names are pulled in this affordable housing lottery that Anna and Reed had entered like as a joke when they first started looking for an apartment together like 10 years ago. And it's in the most exclusive, storied, beautiful building called the Detford, which is right off of Central Park West. Uh, and it's so they'll they'll have this affordable, luxury apartment in a building full of movie stars and and famous musicians, and uh, it's just prime real estate. And for for a moment, they debate whether or not they should take it because. The apartment is in the top floor, and since Anna uses a wheelchair, that makes her very nervous in case there's any sort of emergency or the elevator shuts down. But they decide, you know what? We're not going to turn down good luck when it comes to us. We're going to embrace our fortunes. Uh, we're going to take the apartment, and uh, nothing bad happens, and that's the end of the novel. Uh, it's great. It works out well. It's not a horror novel at all. Uh, everybody's very happy and content uh, until chapter two. Uh, and then bad shit starts to go down. I'll leave it there because I don't want to spoil it. But uh, yeah, they, they find out that this building is not uh, the the change of luck that they were hoping for. And uh, some very difficult things uh, start to happen from there on out. Is there anything you, you that's off limits, by the way, that we shouldn't be yeah, talking about? I love it all. Based on that afterward, I'm assuming that's kind of what the goal of the book was, you know, was like... Someone's got to talk about this. Shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mary was was the same way. Like I, I uh, have just always been someone who kind of processes what I'm going through with the stuff I'm writing anyway. And so, like, if I want to talk about what I'm writing, it's kind of impossible to not just like vomit all my personal shit uh, onto my lap. So, uh, and you know, like I, my my biggest like artistic idols were always like. Stephen King and John Lennon and, you know, people who did the same thing. So I'm yeah. just, I, I grew up reading interviews with people who were always like, well, I was going through this crisis and I wrote this. And, uh, I just, I don't see the point in, uh, in art that isn't like at least an X-ray, if not like a full autopsy of the shit you're going through. <laughs> um, is it okay if that has, that is the start of the, sure. of, the of the episode? Cool. I thought so. I just wanted to make sure. So on the topic of, of that, so, and I found myself doing this recently, not starting talking about the book by talking about the book at all, 
Hmm. but by talking about something about the book. So you're at the end of the book, there's like a little acknowledgement slash afterwards kind of thing. And um, it, if I had emotions that I felt during reading the book, I had way more when I was reading this afterward. Cause really it was you explaining, Hey, this is how, um, fucked up my life was at this period of time, 2021, <laughs> 2021 specifically. And so like, I'm feeling all the feelings of, of that, but then it, your afterwards specifically makes people think about what were they going through? And, mm. uh, that year I had cancer. So, um, Oof. that, <laughs> so, and I'm healthy now. Thankfully, year and a half. Now, yeah. I'm, I'm clear. So it's good and everything. But um, there's there's something about the way you talked about all of that, that ties into a theme in the book. And I promise I'm going to let you talk um, where um, just people dealing with with stuff they didn't ask for. That's mm. nobody's fault. It just happened. And the idea of. um why things happen. And this is something that I've, I've been very fascinated with lately, which is the idea that sometimes there's not an explanation for things. They just yeah. happen. It could have been anyone. It could have been any time. It just happened that it happened to you. So um, I don't even know if there's a question there, but there's something really powerful about that thought. Um, and it's something that is explored in the book. Um, and I think it draws from that stuff that you were saying in the afterwards. So is that kind of an important thought for you that like sometimes bad shit just happens to people? Absolutely. One thousand uh, percent. And first off, I'm so glad you're you're in the clear and, and you're <laughs> you're healthy now. That is, that's phenomenal news. And huge Thanks. congratulations. Um, but yeah, that uh, uh, that is a huge theme for me uh, as a as a person and as a as a writer. Um I, it's interesting. Like I am always fascinated by this tension between good craft, which, you know, I've been, I've been writing my whole life. I've, I've been acting my whole life. Like my, my, I'm steeped in like the mechanics of storytelling. Uh, I've been trained in like more media than, than uh, one mind (laughs) should probably be juggling. Uh, and, and like the, the mechanics of storytelling are kind of similar across all of them. So it's a very similar sort of uh, dicta. Uh, and, you know, that often really emphasizes how important like proactivity is and, you know, character flaws and like what what does this scene tell us about this character and all that stuff. And, I, you know, I love that stuff. I'm not trying to discount that stuff uh, by any stretch. But then when you also write, especially and you you become enamored with despite the fact that I, I, you know, always write supernatural or, or horrific things. Like I've still always been also obsessed with this sort of realism in this, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge aspect in my playwriting is, is, is uh, the theater of realism and having the dialogue sound as realistic as possible. Lots of ums, lots of overlap, you know, lots of uh, run on sentences or sentence fragments and stuff like that. I love feeling like I'm capturing something real and reality realism doesn't, always cooperate with the dicta of story structure and of like, you know, this is happening because of this character's fatal flaw. And, you know, this thing has to have a payoff in act three and all that stuff. So I love finding a way to honor both 
things at the same time whenever I'm writing something. And, you know, like one of the reasons why story structure is the way it is is because that's more satisfying. It's unsatisfying to listen to a story uh, that, you know, doesn't have a, a point or doesn't have uh, a, a connection to a greater theme or something like that. Or if the character is just kind of passive and things are just happening to them. So you have to find ways to not fall in those unsatisfying traps. But I do like to acknowledge uh, in some, in one way or another with, with the things that I uh, create, usually in the earlier drafts, that, you know, a lot of times horrible things do just happen. There is something, uh, you know, almost mind-breakingly cosmic about the unfairness of our existence. I mean, we're, we're the only creature that we know of that, like, walks around knowing we have to die, and we have no idea what that <laughs> means. Like, that's, like, we have to, like, go to, I have to squeeze onto a subway train and go to a day job and worry about paying bills, and just in the back of my mind, always, there's, like, I'm gonna die one day, and I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, we have split the atom, and we still don't know what happens after a body stops breathing. Uh, and like, it's so unfair. We're just born into that and we're expected to just make do. Uh, and so there is just this amazing, absurd, sometimes hilarious chain of, of cruelty that we're just kind of pulled along that we have to just kind of do our best with. Uh, and things happen. Things will happen. I, my wife and I were just walking through a cemetery because we're, we're delightfully morbid like that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago and you know it was it was we were talking about how remarkable it is to just like walk through these literal rows of like that person got to live to a hundred that person died at a year that person died at 21 that person yeah. died at 66 like so many ostensibly unfair endings on display, but when you look at them on mass like that, like it just it hammers home how out of our hands any of this is, and how fucking amazing it is that <laughs> you know we're healthy enough to even be in this moment, regardless of like what actually our our health situation is. Like we're still here, we're listening to this podcast, we're talking right now, yeah. yep. uh, and th that defies so many odds. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, this is probably a long, a more long-winded answer than, than you were looking for and probably bleaker than I'm intending, <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And I feel like it's the job of, especially a horror writer to constantly acknowledge that and to constantly live in that reality that like, you know, you gotta have a good reason for them, for, you know, what your character is doing. You've got to have a satisfying character arc. You've got to have scenes that all contribute to the story and not have, not have, you know, too much fat on the bone and not have too much stuff that, that bogs down the narrative, but also you don't have to have a reason for your monster. You don't have to have a reason for the bad things that are befalling your character all the time. Cause we aren't afforded that, uh, outside of fiction. And it's, you know, sometimes it can almost feel like a cheat to make it, uh, to make it so user-friendly. That's um, a not anything other than what I was hoping for. Um, great, <laughs> wonderful answer, and I, 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 it it makes me think of two things. The first thing, on the storytelling side of things, kind of like you were saying, uh, from a reader's perspective, because I'm not a writer, I I'm just a reader. I'm a lover of of stories. Really, if everything connects and has an explanation, then it's a story. Hmm. 
But if every now and then shit just happens because shit happens, then it feels more real. So like, I think that having that realistic approach to sometimes things just happen does lend authenticity and realism to something that we otherwise know as a story. If everything very neatly connects from A to B or whatever, then it feels like a story. So um, that I definitely have, it's just, it's it's something that's been coming up in conversation with, with other authors recently that, and I think every time we talk about it, I appreciate the idea that um, storytelling is a, is a, there's a lot that goes on in storytelling and there's things that like work and there's things that, you know, probably don't work. And like, you should do the things that work and you should figure it all out and you should do those things. But if you always do those things, maybe it's just going to feel like a story. So, right. Um, I, I do appreciate when people play with that. Yeah. The other part yeah. is, I'll, 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 yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, uh, finish your thought. Well, I was going to move on to the other thing, which is, um, from a personal perspective, I was raised non-religious. Um, hmm. and I had this moment where, uh, I'm like in my twenties and I'm walking down the sidewalk. I'm in the middle of Chicago and this guy comes up to me and he's like, Hey, are you, you know, r- you know, some talking about religion. And I said, Oh, I, I don't have a religion. And his approach was to say something like, Oh, so you don't celebrate this. You don't celebrate this. And I, and I thought about it and I was like, man, I celebrate every day. And that really kind of shut him down. But in my mind, it was kind of a moment for myself where I was thinking, if I don't ascribe specific meaning to specific things where like, this is good when this happens, or this is good because of this, everything has potential. And so any moment could be Christmas or whatever it happens to be. So um, that kind of made me think about how kind of in a similar way, shit just happening could be there's potential for like the worst to happen in the world for no reason, but there's also potential for like amazing things to happen for no kind of reason. And that's, that's kind of gives me a weird optimism that maybe yeah. doesn't make sense, but, but yeah, that's the other kind of thought I had about that. No, I think that is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and uh, I, I ascribe to that very much. I am uh, uh I, I very much identify as an existentialist and existentialism has its, you know, its flip side, which is nihilism. And they both kind of come from the same sort of root, which is that like, you know, nothing has meaning, but like nihilism is like nothing has meaning. So what's the fucking point? Mm-hmm. And existentialism is more like nothing has meaning. So everything has meaning. Like this all means yeah. the same <laughs> thing. Like it's exactly what you're saying. Every day could be a holiday. Cause like, the, she- the sheer unlikability of a sperm fertilizing an egg and then that egg implanting and then surviving long enough for gestation and then like being born healthy. Like the sheer fact that you're alive is so at odds with with the opposite. Like you do not have to exist. It is so hard. I mean, this is kind of top of mind because of the, the fertility issues uh, mentioned in, in the book too. But like, it's so insanely impossible to conceive a kid. And yet it happens <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And it happened to each one of us. And like that, it, it didn't have to be. There does not have to be life on this planet. There's no reason 
for it to exist, which is why some people get very religious because there is no reason. So like, what is the reason? Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's one of the, one of the reasons why I, especially the older I get, the more I connect with Judaism, which I was raised in. I was raised, you know, very observantly Jewish, uh, and, and then drifted away from that the second I was able to, cause I, I don't like, you know, organized religion and, and stuff like that. Uh, that, that doesn't really appeal to me. Um, but the older I get, the more I see the appeal of organized religion and, and start to like come back to some of the rituals in which I was raised. Cause there is something very comforting in, you know, even if you don't fully believe in the like literal, uh, ideological sort of reasons for them, uh, you know, just, just having that explanation, having that kind of, uh, mythology to come back to is really comforting because we are just kind of floating at sea, the sea of existence. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So like, I, I, I really resonate, uh, or what you said really resonates with me. I, I, I 100% agree. I think, I think one of the reasons why, uh, this book is so explicitly Jewish too, besides like some of the more, uh, you know, external reasons that I brought to it. Uh, I think one of the reasons why it it works as a Jewish story is because Judaism also has a of all the the major religions, you know, of which I do not claim to be an expert. So take all of this with a grain of kosher salt. But uh, <laughs> from my experience and, and from what I what I have just gathered anecdotally through my life is that. Judaism is the most comfortable with just kind of being like, I don't know, like <laughs> there's just stuff we don't know. And like, there's some words we can't say, and there's things we can't picture. Like you just, you can't, you can't draw God. You can't conceptualize God. Uh, Cause it's beyond our mortal brains to comprehend. And so there are just some things we're just not going to know. And you have to be okay with that and the even the history of of Judaism just as a people you start to really internalize because uh, like all of our holidays are basically like well someone else tried to exterminate us and we managed to survive and like why why did they do that well we don't know like it's just a thing that happens and you kind of have to roll with it uh, or you lose your mind um, and and like that is literally no different than like a Lovecraftian elder God. Like you stare at it. And if you start to stare at it too long, you lose your mind. Uh, yeah. It's one of the reasons why cosmic horror is so, uh, so meaty and, and resonates with so many people, because those are basically the same ideas that like, there's just, there's just some stuff we can't understand uh, or, or we'll go crazy trying to. So I'm, I'm very comfortable in those ideas. <laughs> um. One of my favorite, I promise listeners will eventually start talking about the book directly, but um, one, of, one, of, yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of, of the book, um, or at least quotes, um, was when uh, Reed, who is the male protagonist, is talking to, uh, I think his name's Isaac, mm. um, who is a gentleman who kind of pops up in the book every now and then, uh, and they're talking about, like, the Jewish history of, of suffering. And, um, I, and I, I believe Isaac's overall point was like, um, like, why do we have to suffer so much or why, why, why so much? Like, because it's a counterpoint to, and I'm going to get this way wrong, but like the whole general idea was like, 
um, the, the power of one of the powers of the people is overcoming the suffering and we still are here and, and all that stuff. And he's like, but why do we have to suffer so much? And I was like, holy shit. First of all, yeah. Um, but then I see that in people. So um little side note into my own life. My girlfriend uh, had, when we started dating a few years ago, four cats, two chickens and a rabbit. Mm. And now they're all gone. And when the final cat was gone, they were all old animals and they all lived beautiful lives and died naturally, but all at the same time within like a year of each other. And that when that final animal was gone, she looked at me and she said, I can't keep anything alive. And I, and, and the only thing I could say to her was you kept them alive for so long and gave them such a good life, but you can't just keep doing that. And so like, there is the kind of point where we reach a breaking point where we're like, when is this going to end? Why, why is this happening? And, and yeah. so I feel like that was a very powerful part of the book where, you know, we, I think we do kind of as people have like the goalpost of suffering is something that can keep being moved to survive as a survival instinct. But at some point we, we're going to break and we're going to be like, the fuck is happening? Why is, why is this happening? Why me? Something or that, something like that. And so that was, that was kind of like a powerful point. And the book for me was reading someone finally just saying like, fucking why though? Yeah, it's uh, that's one of the fun foundational questions of existence. I think you're you're totally right. Like it's we all put up with so much, we all endure so much, and we all have a breaking point. And uh, there often really isn't an answer. And I don't I don't think ultimately we expect there to be an answer. But like, there's great value in that sort of. Uh, uh, pressure release of of that question of just like why why is yeah. this why is this the rule why are we born to die why are we why are we born to suffer and the answer to that question is is up to the individual to to answer um i finished a novella a couple of weeks ago that hopefully is going to get published somewhere next year um and it's it's my other like explicitly Jewish story. I I, I was I kind of put some of the stuff I wanted to say in Nestlings and and didn't get to say. I kind of poured that into this novella. Um, but it also uh, so it's it's a Jewish protagonist and it's kind of you know a, a sort of Jewish vibe. But the ultimate uh, sort of revelation it's building to is actually a Buddhist one, which uh, just kind of anecdotally I know a lot of other. Uh, like, you know, uh, uh, not religious, but, but just kind of culturally Jewish people uh, tend to gravitate towards Buddhism. There, there is a very big overlap between the, the ideologies, I think, um, that, that can be really appealing when you don't, you know, when you don't want to follow like the, the strict <laughs> observances of Judaism, because uh, they're both about asking questions and they're both about kind of, uh, you know, analyzing existence. Uh, and there's a, a Buddhist teaching that my whole life I've always uh, kind of in, uh, carried with me and, and, and reflected on and kind of come back to that, that is, is, you know, part of the climax of this novella. So forget this anecdote when that novella comes out. Everybody. <laughs> um, it's not much of a spoiler. Uh, it's been around for thousands of years. 
but it's this Buddhist teaching of, you know, the Buddha's got his, his, uh, his disciples around him. They're not disciples, but uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, uh, and uh, he's, he's giving them this, this lesson uh, and he holds up a, a glass uh, and he says, look at this glass. I love this glass. I love the way it catches the light. I love the way it brings water to my lips. I love that I can, I can drink and replenish with this glass. And when I drop it and it shatters, I am devastated. I, I break with this glass to lose it until I realize that in its broken state, that is its true state. That's the state that it will be forever. And that this moment of it being whole and beautiful and, uh, and carrying this water, that is a very temporary, amazing thing. But the glass is meant to be broken. And it's still beautiful in that, in that form. Uh, and so th that's something I think about all the time that like, you know, this, the moments of not suffering, this sounds like a very depressing thing to say, but, but similar to what you're saying about holidays, like it, it can actually be quite freeing. It's the moments we're not suffering that are actually the exception and mm -hmm. like are, are the amazing moments to celebrate and, and to pay attention to and cherish. Um, it's one of the reasons why I love horror so much as a genre is that horror, you know, very explicitly reminds us that like bad shit happens. Uh, and I think one of the reasons we're drawn to write and read horror is because on on many levels we recognize that, and we either want to practice, you know, that 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 thrill of bad things happening or things falling apart, or we want to, you know, kind of imagine a worse a worser case scenario than probably what's <laughs> going to befall us. Uh, all all sorts of reasons like that, um, but it is kind of, you know, even even your best case scenario is that one of these days you're gonna die. And you're going to have to say goodbye. And it's just like your girlfriend's pets, which break my heart. Cause I had the, a very similar experience with our pets. As I, as I talk about in the afterward of nestlings, like we got our dog and our cat to 16 and 18. Like they were, yeah. that was as long as they were going to live. We did not let them die prematurely and they had amazing lives. And yet that was two years ago. And I'm still yeah. devastated when I think about leaving them uh, or losing them. And uh, that is our best case scenario to have something we love that, that, that leaves us or that we have to leave. Uh, and that's a heavy thing to have to, to carry with us as, as, you know, as cognizant little meat sacks. Um, but that's also beautiful <laughs> and important yeah. and like important to, again, not to be so fucking morbid and depressing, but it's an important <laughs> thing to acknowledge at least from time yeah. to time. Yep. I agree. Um, <laughs> no, I, I fully, I'm bright. I'm, I feel like we are, you know, really in sync with how we feel about those things. Um, and it's funny you brought up Buddhism because like, I've never really studied much <clears throat> in the way of religion or philosophy, but at some point my girlfriend kind of looked at me and she's like, you know, you're like basically a Buddhist. Like, <laughs> so there's, there's a possibility that I may have accidentally found it, you know, without really knowing I had, um, yeah but apparently a lot of the way that I act uh, is really aligned with Buddhism. So uh, it's something that I'm like, maybe one day I'll actually look at that. But um, yeah, there's, I mean, the, there's fascinating <laughs> and, and really empowering stuff uh, there that I, that I love. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm barely more than a novice myself, but, but yeah, I've, I've often found Buddhism to be incredibly enriching. Yeah. Um, 
and all you know all of the all of the religions really all of the the major religions i think at least have fascinating aspects to them even if you don't necessarily like connect with them on a spiritual level um yeah yeah definitely. I, I once I was once asked when I, this was back when I was a playwright because um, I had like uh, it was very prolific as a playwright. I wrote like fourteen plays or something like that in uh, in like ten years. Uh, so I was churning out like play after play after play, um, and they're all you know they're basically all horror plays. Also, they're very <laughs> similar to the to the books I write. But I was once asked in an interview if I had like a common theme through all of them. Uh, that I recognized in retrospect. Uh, and they're all very, very different from each other. But I realized as I as I looked at them that they all kind of had the same ultimate theme, which is it's about human beings' uh, connection to slash investigation of God as a concept. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what we're already talking about, this, this big cosmic why that we're... we're uh, <laughs> we're desperate to know. Um, but that, that just compels me that, that fascinates me and all the different ways we've, we've asked that question and answered that question. And then all the ways that like humans have corruptly kind of taken advantage of that question and kind of, you know, built these systems of, of either oppression or enlightenment and often one in the same at the same time. Uh, I love that shit. It's, it's, we can't escape it. We're not above it. As as fascinating as it is, like it's it's a part of us. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I could really just go down that rabbit hole with you, um, <laughs> but considering we're probably approaching like the half hour mark, I'm going to uh, direct us to the general idea of nestling. There's a book so, we're supposed to talk about, right? Yeah, 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 yeah a book yeah. that we're supposed to talk about. Um, but like, <laughs> people are gonna get through this. They're going to hear the whole conversation. They're going to read the book and they're going to be like, I get why they were talking about this. So it's all, it's all, it's all worth it. Um, so the general kind of setup is Reed and Anna, Anna, mm-hmm. you nailed it. Anna, Anna. And that's specifically the name is spelled a N a and it comes up later on that someone's saying it a N N a. And I thought that was kind of a, <laughs> I mean, a cute little thing in the book, but um. So As a Nat who is constantly called Nate, that was my little uh, hat tip. Yeah. Eternal <laughs> frustration. See, I don't get that much, but like my last name being Olson, um, I get the misspelling and I'm, I'm way over that. But whenever I try to say my name on the phone, everybody always hears Wilson because huh. that's, that's the name that, you know, their mind knows already or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so Reed and Anna and their baby, Charlie, have just at the beginning of the book, um, there's there's this thing that happens where they they and I imagine this is a real thing where like they had entered a lottery for a an affordable housing kind of situation in this kind of like dream building, and they they basically just got this apartment, um, and so now the whole idea is like this is a great opportunity, but at the same time. Like Anna had gone through a very tough problem with a pregnancy where she became paralyzed afterwards because of complications. And so she's in a wheelchair and there, so there's a lot going on. They're not um, wealthy by any means. And this is, this is kind of positioned as this could be a real change for the family, but it's kind of a big decision to, to make this move. Um, 
fuck, I had a question and I talked so much that I can't remember what it is. <laughs> um, but really kind of this. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm back. Um, and so like the first chapter really sets up who they are, where they're at in life, what this change could mean to them. And the kind of general conflict that a family would have in that situation. But because I want to talk about something a little less serious, hmm. the final part of that, like kind of initial chapter has <laughs> their kind of uh, real estate broker person who's showing them around. Once the, the family has gone, we've interviewed the family and, we, and, and they, and they leave and we're kind of stuck just with her Um the way that we kind of confirm that things aren't really going well is that she had caught this cockroach. She didn't want the family to know was there because of, you know, you know, ostensibly like we don't want to scare them away, but then she eats it. And that's kind of the end of the chapter. And so um, I will say that I love those little moments. It's kind of like sometimes in a song, there's like, like a note that only happens once. And it's like, Mm. Like there's a reason that's there. Like it's it's something that they're telling another band member or whatever. But like I feel like that was the note that happens once, where it's like I'm telling you something bigger, and we both know it. But right now she's just <laughs> she's just chewing on a cockroach. So um, I thought that was a nice way to introduce from the very beginning. Like if they had any instinct to not go into this building, that instinct was right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love. Uh, I, I love that uh, uh, analogy you made too, because I also love just those weird production moments in a song where it's like, hmm, all right, I uh, got to listen to the song again just to hear that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that. Um, yeah, it's uh, that moment very much serves the purpose you're describing. I, you know, speaking of structure, I'm a huge structure uh, fan. I love storytelling structure, despite my love of realism. Uh, and, uh, one of, you know, the, the rules that is yes, meant to be broken as all rules are, but one of the rules of a lot of horror stories is that you've got to have like something happen in the first chapter, uh, (laughs) to let us know the stakes or to let us know, uh, that things aren't right. Um, and, uh, so that was in, that was on one hand, like uh, a little wink and a nod at that sort of idea. Um, you know, it, and it, it it makes sense organically to the story too. It's not like I just like jammed it on, on top. Uh, but also it's, uh, you know, I'm tiptoeing up to spoilers here, but, uh, we've, we've talked about this in other promos. So I feel like I can say this, this book is a, it's not a vampire story, but it is vampire adjacent. Um, there is a certain element of vampire mythology that, uh, that gets expounded upon, uh, and so throughout the book, there are also little allusions to classical vampire stories. There's a character named Camilla instead of Carmilla. Uh, and, uh, you know, little, little things. Oh, her last name is Varney. Uh, and it's a little wink to Varney the vampire. Uh, and this oh, wow. little bug eating moment was also, uh, you know, you gotta have a Renfield. You gotta have a character that's a yeah. little like Renfield. Uh, so that was, that was also a little, uh, a little wink and a nod to that. Um, cause I can't help myself and I love literary illusions like that. Uh, I find them very cute. Uh, so yeah, it, that, that moment serves a lot of, uh, of different purposes. It's also, it also makes for a good reading excerpt whenever I have to do a reading of this book. So I can just read that chapter and end on that note. Uh, 
(laughs) There's plenty of surprises in the book. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Like you have to have something to read and to have one of those like moments. Yeah. is, Is definitely good. So talking about literary illusions, um, I, I will fall down because I, I don't know as much about horror as a lot of people, but I picked up on a couple of references. So um, Brian Keene's name, Keene, mm-hmm. pops up at some point. <laughs> so Keene is definitely a reference that I that I picked up on. And I believe at some point there was a reporter whose name was Stephanie Hartman, which is really close to Sadie Hartman. Um, and <laughs> excellent, I was like, excellent pickup. Uh, but I have to imagine that, and I'm sure that there's a, there's a, a good number of probably other references. I feel like Stephen King references happen. Um, and, and knowing your reputation, that would make total sense. Um, (laughs) which by the way, speaking of religion and, and holiday observances and stuff like that, we're recording on Stephen King's birthday, which I have to imagine for you is a very special day. So thank you. Every year, yeah. <laughs> Since <laughs> I was a for... kid. Of course, we're talking about horror. It's, the, it's a perfect observance. Yeah, I always, yeah, yeah. I, I've been a lifelong Stephen King obsessive since I was like seven years old or something like that. Uh, and always got a kick out of his birthdays, the 21st. Uh, Ani DeFranco and Bruce Springsteen's birthdays are the 23rd, who are also huge idols of mine. And then my birthday is the 25th. Uh, uh-huh. So I was like, that we're all in the 20s together. Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. There are, in everything I write, there's always little, uh, winks and nods to, uh, to certain illusions like that. There's also a character with the last name of Langan, who's, in, uh, uh, yep, yep. uh, that, yeah, that's a reference to John Langan and Sarah Langan, who are both unrelated, but phenomenal writers, uh, and horror writers specifically. Um, st- <laughs> I'm glad you, you mentioned the, uh, the Hartman character, cause that is, yes, Sadie's last name and then Stephanie uh, was a reference to a writer in my writer's group, Stephanie Willing, who's a <laughs> YA writer. Um, who's a phenomenal middle grade writer. Uh, and so is not in the horror scene, but I wanted to tip my hat to her too. She just had a book come out that's really great if you're looking for a non-horror uh, middle grade book. It's called West of the Sea that I highly recommend. Um, that was workshopped basically alongside Nestlings. And I always find that fascinating that like they're such different books, but they were they were basically <laughs> grown. To, they're cousins because they were workshopped together over over many months, um, and uh, yeah, there there are Stephen King allusions. There's uh, this book technically takes place in the same universe as Rosemary's Baby because mm. the Bramford uh, building is referenced just uh, offhandedly, nice. but that exists in this world. Uh, uh, yeah, I love that shit. All horror is one big uh, shared universe. In fact, hey, if we want to get super Stephen King nerdy. On the 21st of September, why not? They're all just different levels of the beam. Anyway, they're all just part of the Dark Tower. <laughs> wow, right on. So, I, and I have <laughs> I'll see to, myself like, out. I have to confess, um, I was, I, I, like, as someone who finds themselves more and more associated with horror, um, I've never been a huge Stephen King reader. Um, yeah. I, uh, I've probably read five five books and most of it was a long time ago, nothing against Stephen King. And I, I definitely appreciate this talent for storytelling, but then I I hear people who like their whole kind of like there, there's so much of like a, a basis of Stephen King 
inspiring this and inspiring that, that I'm like, Ooh, I, I I'm worried about talking to Stephen <laughs> King people because I am way out of my element when it comes to that. So I, I was actually thinking the other day that I might have to start calling myself like a, a non Stephen King horror person or something, just so people know, like <laughs> those references are probably lost on me. Um, but um, the stuff I that I read, that. yeah, <laughs> like Needful Things, if you ask me, is a fucking fantastic book. That's one of the ones I oh, haven't yeah. read. Um, it's so like, but I have this thing now where I'm like, ooh, at some point it's going to come out that I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of horror people. I'm, I'm, I work, I'm, I'm a member of the Horror Writers Association, but I really don't have a lot of knowledge of Stephen King. And I'm like, is this going to be like my dark secret? So I'm just coming up. <laughs> I hope not. in front of it. <laughs> I anyone who tries to gatekeep can can go fuck themselves. Uh, uh, so I hope nobody uh, nobody makes you feel that way because I I think that's super exciting. I think that's uh, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to try and express at the same time as as you've probably gathered. I, I do like my digressions, uh, but a it makes me think of how you know humbling and important that is. That goes back to the the the. Uh, um, the mortality shit we've already been talking about. Like, you know, you can be fucking Stephen King and, you know, people are going to eventually grow out of reading you obsessively. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's okay. like, there was literally a time when Somerset mom was the most popular writer around. And like, who do you know who's read a Somerset mom book, let alone all of them? Like it's just, or even pronounce the name right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry. <laughs> w Somerset mom. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, so like, that's a really important thing to remember. Like we, we all get really obsessed with fame and reputation and like, who wouldn't love to be the next Stephen King. But like, it's important to remember that none of that shit matters. Uh, and eventually like <laughs> Stephen King's going to be just as obscure, maybe not just as obscure, but relatively as obscure as any other writer, uh, that is his peer. Um, and uh, also, I think there's just, you know, there's something really exciting, I think, to have stuff to be discovered and stuff to, you know, you're probably not going to read his entire canon. Uh, but like, <laughs> I think that's great that like there are some books that are super important to some people that are like still in your future. There's still books in my future that are important to people that I've never read. Uh, yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting thing about Stephen King in that he's so prolific and he's so foundational to me specifically and to, to plenty of other people as well. Um, and it's in some way kind of a fluke of uh, chronology because I was, I was born in 81. I would, I started reading him, you know, in the late eighties. So he had a shit ton of books by that point, but nothing like now. And I yeah. caught up really quickly <laughs> And then was I've been reading, you know, his new releases as they come out for, you know, 30 something years. Uh, and I can I cannot conceptualize what it must be like to have not done that. Like, how would you find the time to be like, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to catch up on Stephen <laughs> King's catalog. Yeah. That's I had a hard enough time catching up on fucking Game of Thrones, uh, yeah. let alone, you know, 60 something books that that you're going to have to catch up on. So, like, they're. Stephen King would be the first to admit that there are other writers out there that also demand your attention. And like, you don't have to, yeah. you don't have to read every fucking thing that, that he wrote. Cause <laughs> you know, it's, it's all very important to me. I'll fight for the, uh, the importance and the merit of everything he's, he's ever published, but 
you know, they're not all the same quality. Like you don't have to fucking sit down with all of them. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, I love, I think it's, I think it's, it's great. It's also really important, I think, to have, uh, readers and interviewers and other writers and people who have different frames of reference too. Cause if we're all fucking reading the same shit, it's all going to get watered down and homogenized and that's no good for anybody either. So I support you. And (laughs) if anyone makes you feel bad, you send them to me. Well, you, you even made me think of something, um, Historically, coming up, I was very um, timid about horror as a child. And hmm. so I know some kids really went into it all, all like my friend John. He had Freddy Krueger in his locker in fifth hmm. grade and stuff like from Fangoria and all that. So he was into it from that point. And that dude reads a ton of Stephen King. I was scared shitless about horror until later in life that I really yeah. started to explore it. And so my reading was Douglas Adams and I read a lot of philosophy and a lot of like literary fiction and stuff. So like my younger years were informed by totally different stuff. Yeah. And when I came around to horror, I know I'm reading the generation that exists because of Stephen King. So like in a way, there's no way to not be reading Stephen King, even if you're, not reading Stephen King. <laughs> That's very true. Um, I'm just getting like like a first or a second wave of new writers that you know exist because this guy gave them a, a jumping off point or an inspiration or something like that. So yeah, um, yeah, that's definitely. But again, like you said, you know, generations from now, who who knows who the Stephen King of the time is going to be, and it's going to be different world, you know? So, right. And I mean, Stephen King wasn't created in a vacuum either, which I think is very important for people to remember too. Like, you know, Richard Matheson came before him, Ray Bradbury and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, Charles Beaumont and all these other amazing writers that are just as good as him. And Stephen King, again, like I, I don't say this to discount, uh, his talent and his work ethic, which are, you know, both, tremendous and like two of the most important things to me to emulate uh as a as a as a writer as well but like you know just like the beatles of which i'm also a massive obsessive fan but like they're from similar generations and that you know they they happened to be as good as they are at a time when the marketplace allowed them to thrive in a very specific way uh, and there are plenty of other people who are just as good that did not have the same privileges. Uh, plenty of writers who are just as good who didn't have, you know, Brian De Palma make their first movie and, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, Toby Hooper make the second book and Stanley Kubrick make the third book. And like that, there are amazing, amazing writers who are just as good and just some as, some just as prolific that are also out there waiting to be discovered. And I think that's that's an important thing to remember and, a, and an exciting thing to remember. Um, and yeah, so you're reading, you know, a new generation that's been influenced by Stephen King, but you're also reading people who are influenced by, by, you know, cousins on the family tree. Yep. Uh, and that's one of the great things about writing is that, that, you know, that baton, uh, that passing of the baton, that baton relay race, uh, of, of influence and stuff like that. And we're all just kind of a mishmash of, of the things <laughs> that came before us. I, we're I getting very you, philosophical tonight. Yeah, I know. Like we, <laughs> um, before before we get off Stephen King on his birthday, um, 
I will say that one of the things that I've become just so in love with, uh, and probably this is because I know a lot of writers that he's highlighting and stuff, or I've read a lot of their books, hmm. is when Stephen King says something good about an author that I know or that is you know dear to me or I've read their books, nothing makes me happier because I'm like, yeah. the, you know, getting the nod from Stephen King, great. You know, he's a, he's, you know, he's, he's endorsing the book and that's great, but there's just this wave of like attention that comes with it that yeah. um, I always want the people that I care about as authors to get as much attention as possible. And so he, uh, he talked about Megan Abbott's book, the turnout um, and his tweet was so just like effusive about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, go Megan, like, I, I, you know, whatever you think about Stephen King, this guy putting his stamp on a book is to me, like, I wish that when I talked enthusiastically about a book, like it got the same kind of coverage. So like when I see something and I'm like, he's saying it and he's getting them the attention I want them to have. So it's always, yeah. it makes me very happy when like a Paul Tremblay or, or a, you know, Megan Abbott or whatever, get, get the Stephen King stamp. I, I just fucking love it. Yeah. He is, he's still a career maker. Um, and that, <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, obviously that's like my, my huge, huge, uh, uh, goal on my bucket list as well is to, to, have similar attention, but regardless of whether or not it happens, I think it, it speaks to uh, something that is very unique about him and is, is very commendable uh, because he's never stopped giving back to the community. And he, uh, one, one of the many things about him that like I have admired my entire life is that he is first and foremost a writer, but like it's a real close second that he's a reader. He's a, absolutely obsessive reader he loves books he loves stories uh and so he's never been shy to like share his love for that uh i used to i i worked with him for a week like 20 years ago uh (laughs) on the uh, uh new york workshop of this musical that he wrote with john mellencamp um which uh is interesting. Uh, but it was a really, it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I got to be with, you know, I got to spend time with this person who's like <laughs> my next, the book that I'm writing right now, uh, which is influenced by needful things appropriately enough, but I I'm dedicating it to him because it's all about childhood. And in my dedication, I'm like, I, I basically say like, this is to Stephen King. Cause you are as much a part of my childhood as I was basically. <laughs> Cause I was just like reading his work obsessively at a very formative age. Um, and so it was so wild to be in a room with him and to hear his very, you know, unique voice, uh, a very recognizable voice, which was this voice I used to listen to on book, literally books on tape that used to like read me to sleep as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was, it was very wild to hear that. Um, but at the end of this workshop, he took us all out to dinner uh, and he signed a bunch of books for us and I got to bring... Uh-huh. Uh, uh, some like of my mo- I couldn't bring all of my books because that would have been insane. So I brought like the one that was the most important to me, which was my little mass market paperback of his nonfiction book on horror called Dance Macabre. Uh, and at the you know, so I had him sign me that, and he was even like, "Wow, I, have- I don't see this book very often." Uh, but like that book has a reading list in the back of other books that he loves, and that was like 
Nice. You know, even as yeah. you're saying, like, you know, we're all kind of influenced even in indirect ways by him. That was basically like a curriculum for me. And I read all of those books and I read all the books that he, uh, any book that he blurbed and, and all the books that he talks about in the text of Dance Macabre and, um, you know, any book he wrote an intro for. Uh, and that's a very, again, like it'd be, it'd be very easy to just kind of achieve that stratospheric level of fame and silo yourself off. But he's... Yeah so great at being like i fucking love books and you're gonna read them and you're gonna read them and like it's just books everybody read books uh so i th- i think that's that's an incredibly important element of his fame that's one of my favorite types of authors too is the ones where like when they talk about something that's not theirs and you can tell that they're just as much a fan as you are like i love yeah. that more than anything and so like Stephen Graham Jones does that all the time. Like you can tell that this guy is just the biggest fan of horror. And so like, uh, there's a lot of reasons to love that guy. But one of the things, one of the qualities that I think um, I I appreciate about him the most is the fact that like, he doesn't put himself above people really. And Mm. he, he does his best to highlight things that he's excited about. And he thinks are great just because he thinks they're great. Um, So that's a quality that I love about, um, authors is when I can see that enthusiasm in them that I have in myself. I, I really love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's so amazing. It's, it's like if you've ever spoken to or seen an interview with like Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino and they just talk about movies Yeah, and it's like, it's infectious. It makes you want to know every <laughs> movie that they know. Uh, uh, I love that. Yep. I have an uncle who loves to collect books, but he doesn't like, the way he collects books is he goes to uh, like Goodwill or garage sales or library sales and he'll just buy stuff that he knows. So he doesn't buy stuff. He doesn't invest in stuff. He's like the, I got a good find kind of guy. Yeah. And his library is fucking insane. Cause that's like all he does when he, he's not working is just go around and like look for books. So like first editions of like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and all this kind of stuff, like uh, it's, it's, he's got a lot of stuff where I'm like, God damn, multiple first editions, first printings of like all of the Harry Potter books and stuff. Oh, no, I think but I know where this is going and I'm, I'm dreading it. <laughs> so um, he's show. I, I, I went to visit him. He lives in Maryland. I, sh- I won't tell you where <laughs> for his own <laughs> safety, but I will tell you that he worked in the NSA for 20 years. So you might not want to mess with him. Uh, and he's showing me around his library and he's explaining how like, Oh, catch 22 was originally had a different name and like, blah, blah, blah. And he's, he's just giving me this like just info dump of like awesome stuff. And he's like, Oh, here, look. And he pulls out rage, like a oh, copy God. of rage. And he's explaining it and he's talking about the whole thing and he's giving me the, the, the history of it. And he's like, and then he pulls out a second copy. He's got two that are just <laughs> sitting there in his library. Oh man. <laughs> and I'm like, first editions, I assume just yeah. straight Richard Bachman. Yep. Oh. yep. Yeah. The real deal. And um, at the time I was like, Oh, Hey, good for you. Like, that's a cool story. Later. I figure out the significance <laughs> of this and I'm like, Oh, but yeah, so um, I'm not mad about that. I'm glad it's in a good a good home. That's the thing. He's so much a lover and an enthusiast of, of books, not for their value, but because of like really that they exist. I think so. Yeah, 
Also, he introduced me to the book Shadow of the Wind, which, if you ask me, is one of the most perfect books ever written. So, I uh, still need to read that. If you can, oh my it. God. I have a copy of it. I'm dying to read it. Oh I've heard amazing God. things, but yeah, I'm I'm behind on that. Just prepare yourself to. Have you ever read anything by Craig Clevenger? I don't think so. Okay. Um, prepare yourself after reading Shadow of the Wind to be like, I. I, I see perfection in writing. Like this guy mm. is just so good. And it's crazy because it's translated. So like, what was the original yeah. text like? But um, anyway, Shadow of the Wind is, is a perfect book. It's just a Ooh. perfect book. Um, but anyway, we'll get back to talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is also a perfect book. Nestlings is also a perfect book, everybody. Nestlings, perfect book. Yeah. <laughs> So that's me sounding uh, like a pompous ass on purpose. Don't worry. Let's talk about, so there's some themes in this book and I was going to jokingly be like, let's talk about disabilities, but um, there's themes in this book that are really hard. And so like for anybody who's listening so far, um, here's what I'll say. We've tackled a lot of really serious stuff and we've talked about serious things. Um, The book isn't just a slog of a, of a, just it doesn't just it's not like weighing you down with its heavy uh you know you know um the themes and everything like that but they exist in there but the book itself is very entertaining and um and and it also manages to incorporate some really heavy stuff so um we talked about it a little bit Anna's disability being um being paralyzed is definitely something that exists in the book but there's also um like the, the challenges of, of new parenthood, there's definitely a kind of a grief element to the book. Um, and so overall, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but there's just really heavy stuff in here. Um, but in a way, I think that what I want to highlight is the fact that like the book maintains um, being able to keep you wanting to read more and and entertaining you and and having its light moments and its dark and heavy moments uh, in in a very balanced way. And um, I don't even know where where I'm going with this, but I I think the one thing I want to commend you on is that there's so much heavy stuff and there's so many kind of deeper things that we can easily connect with as people who have all gone through a bunch of shit. Um, You still made it um, a book where at moments I'm like, thinking about, oh man, I love it when there's a story where there's this like building who's got this mysterious past and like, you know, and then like, so there's like these other elements to it that aren't heavy and there's a real good balancing act of like, there's a monster element. There's this like kind of history element to this, like, you know, famous building. There's all this stuff going on and the heavy stuff. And is that really fucking difficult to do? Um, I, that's a, Thank you. First of all, like that, that means a great deal, um, to hear. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, yes, I guess it is difficult in a way, <laughs> but also I hesitate to say this cause it makes me sound like an immodest dick bag, but no, <laughs> it cause I, well, it, let me let me clarify that I, I don't think I can qualify or quantify which which keyword do I want I can't I can't qualify it quantify it whatever one whichever one works uh, only because to me they're they're uh, inextricably linked I 
would be far from the first person to make the uh, uh, connection between humor and horror. Um, and uh, but but I I think that's because it is such a basically a truism that that horror and humor go hand in hand. And we have like covered some some heavy shit. Uh, and I think it's also been a pretty lighthearted conversation because I think yeah. sometimes that's the only way to cover these sorts of things is to like to not. Uh, it's to acknowledge the seriousness of it, acknowledge the weight of it, but also not get bogged down in it and to not succumb to it um, and to find humor in it. Like that's, that's, and that's why I find it hard to say whether or not that was, it's a hard thing to do per se, because, you know, it's so hardwired in me. It is my, my, like, as my therapist will probably acknowledge, it's my like deepest defense mechanism to make not, you know, again, not light. We're not like joking about disability or postpartum or you know uh, these really serious things. But you know, just kind of laughing at the fruitlessness of uh, uh, of trying to fight it. Basically, it's like, well, what the fuck can you do? Uh, and, uh, and that's one of the things I find so valuable value, valuable about uh, genre fiction, specifically, is that it really gives you an engine to, uh, you know, soar over the doldrums and to not succumb to that. It's, I, I love all kinds of horror. I, I celebrate all kinds of horror. I will consume all kinds of horror, but you know, I will admit that sometimes I get a little bored with the like extra heavy, like, you know, barely a disguised, uh, metaphor for grief horror that has become kind of popular in movies uh, lately because sometimes I do just want like a fucking fart joke. Like I just need like something like, I just need characters to at least have a moment to like make eye contact, eye contact and be like, Holy shit, this is insane. What we're going through right now, (laughs) because that's what we do. That's, that's how we, that's how we exist. That's how we survive moment by moment. Um, and so, Again, like I, I almost hesitate to say this because it feels like an immodest thing to say, but just like qualitatively, one of the things that is often said about, just as a for instance, my plays, which tend to also be, deal with like very heavy things and are about horrible, horrific things and, you know, will end very disturbingly. But people will come away from them and be like, holy shit, that was way funnier than I was expecting it to be. Because I, I find those, those moments to be... Um, you know, not just valuable, but necessary to feed the horror. You know, the, the lighthearted moments are there to stand in opposition to and also to give fuel to that feeling of helplessness. Um, it's one of the reasons why David Lynch is also like one of my like artistic North Stars, because I find David Lynch uh, as a filmmaker really expertly and, and naturally. I don't think he's trying to do it. I think he just intrinsically does it where he has these like really goofy, like surreal dopey sometimes like straight up dopey moments and characters and interactions. Uh, And then they achieve this incredible, delicious sense of dread because there's nothing quite like that feeling of like what happens after the joke pays off, but the (laughs) joke keeps going. (laughs) <laughs> and you know, we we uh, I think I think this was off mic. I don't think we were recording yet, but we were talking about a love of awkward humor uh, before we got started on this conversation. And that that is very much a part of this. That feeling of like, 
I love when something is funny and then it stops being funny. Um, and, and, you know, like it just keeps going and it's really disturbing and dreadful. Um, all of which to very long windedly answer your, your question then is like, uh, and this 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 pays off into the uh, uh, the discussion of structure versus realism that we were having earlier too. Is that like an innate uh, load bearing element of you know uh, a a sort of like inner structure is less like storytelling structure and more just like like the mechanics of a story. Is that you've got to have moments of levity. You've got to have moments of weightlessness. You've got to have moments of speed and concision. Because otherwise it just becomes punishing. Uh, and like nobody wants to sit through that. You start to lose your your audience. You start to lose the goodwill. You start to lose interest. So like I always try and make sure that anything I write um, has an element of froth to it. Uh, you know, you don't want it to be the overwhelming uh, uh, flavor. And, you know, maybe some people do. Maybe some people really like, you know, frothy, campy stuff. I personally don't respond to it the, the way I do to something that's more of a combination of both that has like the, the really heavy shit and then the moments of like, uh, you know, I, I think just as an example right now, uh, uh, I think South Korean cinema is like the apex of cinema. And like for the past, like, decade and change South Korean filmmakers have been making, I think like the best movies around right now. And they, uh, you know, it feels weird to generalize them like this, but just as like a school of cinema, the South Korean school seems to be incredibly comfortable with having the most disturbing, beautifully wrought horror you've ever seen. Uh, and then a scene where people are like literally slipping and falling down and going boom. And it's just like <laughs> dumb Pratt falls and, you know, you know, really high, high patter, high speed, like arguments and things like that, that are like straight out of like a, a Billy Wilder comedy. Uh, <laughs> and they sit alongside these horrific moments of dread and despair. Um, and I, I, I think especially in American entertainment, we can get very uncomfortable with mixing our genres like that. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I tend to go to like foreign uh, films and uh, foreign cinema and stuff like that for uh, those, those different vibes. Um, and that's a vibe that I'm always going for as a, as a writer and as a reader and, and stuff like that too. Cause I, I just find it all to be very important. I get, maybe it is because if, if my, if my style of speech is not already apparent, uh, <laughs> I tend to get very easily distracted and, and uh, uh, want like, you know, a lot of different kinds of stimuli. Um, so maybe it's, maybe it's a part of that. Maybe it's cause I was raised in the eighties and nineties on, on sugar, uh, and TV. <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, like I, I just, I love, I love that. And so, uh, bringing it uh, back around to, to the, uh, question you asked, uh, 45 minutes ago. Um, I don't think it's hard per se, but I think it is, it does take effort to not lose sight of that and to make sure that like, you know, especially when you're in like second and third and fourth drafts of something to just be like, has it all been depressing? Has it all been punishing yeah. for too yeah. long? There were definitely earlier drafts of this where like the, the, the moments in Anna's head where she's despairing over what she's been going through, which absolutely earns despairing over like the whole point of her character is that she begins this book 
just in an incredibly depressed state, postpartum depression, post-injury depression. She's in a wheelchair now. She used to be a dancer. She used to be a personal trainer. She yeah. can't fucking walk the way she like. She can't go for a walk the way she used to. She doesn't feel connected to her baby. Like it's all so fucking depressing. Uh, and we were just living in that reality for too long, uh, which is not to say like uh, uh, it cheats. I hope the book doesn't cheat and like, takes us out of that headspace unnaturally or unorganically. It's just trying to find ways to uh, honor that there are other uh, elements of even this character's existence in those moments. And it's not, it's unnatural for us just as, as human beings to live in that, in that yeah. shade all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> That's my I'm going to go, I'm here, I'm going to get real. And, and so, but this is to illustrate exactly what you're saying. Um, and, and this is probably like, we're talking about, and I don't know if I would even go this far with most, I talked to Josh Mellerman about this, but not on the podcast. Um, it was when we were just kind of chatting afterwards, but what you were just saying kind of reminds me of a moment when I was going through chemotherapy where, hmm. Um, so Anna's situation reminds me a lot of, of something I went through where um, I think in the moment when we're going through something like that, we don't always understand it fully. So that's one thing. Um, but the other thing is like, you don't like the thing for me, like being weak, you know, being feeling ill, all those kinds of things were like, yeah, this is what this is what this is. I get it. And and it was just like, okay, well, this is how I am for a while. The moment that fucking scared me and that was like the lowest kind of most depressed for me was I couldn't do anything. I had to sit around the house all day because like I was going through a chemotherapy during a pandemic. So mm. I had zero immune system. I could not go anywhere. I couldn't interact with people. It's very solitary. Um, and my refuge has always been, oh, did you see the little thumbs up? Yeah, what is that? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> um, I'm on the, the beta software for um, Apple's new um, uh, Mac OS. And the new Mac OS and the new iOS and all that stuff, it recognizes certain like hand gestures. and like, Holy shit. The <laughs> so um, that's why that showed up. Um, <laughs> I, I just naturally express with my hands. So um, you might see that from time to time, but that's what that is fascinating yeah that was very unexpected especially in context <laughs> chemotherapy i know <laughs> so my my refuge the thing that i have always like gotten the most comfort from is is books and reading and so one day i was like i'm just going to read for a little bit and i sat down to read and for 15 minutes i read like three pages and i was mm -hmm. like just my brain wouldn't do it and 30 minutes and I was like, I wasn't making any progress in this book. And finally I was like, I can't read. Like I cannot read right now. And literally what I did was I went into my bedroom with the lights out and I sat on my bed just in the dark, just like staring at nothing mm. because I felt so defeated because this was like the one thing that mattered to me and it was taken away from me. And so I see what Anna was feeling with like, you're a personal trainer who is now paralyzed. Like the most important thing has been taken away from you kind of thing. Um, but to your point, that wasn't how I was all the time. Like there were these moments, there's peaks and valleys of like, 
everything seems like pretty normal. And then there was like those moments like that, where it was like, I felt like I was at my lowest, but to your point, not everybody exists in a straight line like that. Like there's always going to be deviations and like, you know, things that change. So um, what you're saying really kind of resonates with a very realistic approach to how kind of people exist, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and it's, I think it's very beneficial to depict that in fiction too, because yeah, it's, it can be very uh, unhelpful, maybe even damaging to also portray uh, disabled people or people who are going through something or people with a mental illness or something like that as defined by it. And like, yeah. this is, you know, you should feel sorry for them. Like, I mean, obviously like there are, there are aspects that like deserve empathy and, and, and things like that for sure. But like pity can be a very destructive and dangerous thing and a dehumanizing thing. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so it's important to, kind of portray all sides of it as honestly as possible. Like this is how bad it can get and it can probably get even worse than I can portray, but also like there are still moments to like fight for and to, uh, to celebrate and that also define this existence and this person. Um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, that was, that was, uh, I was very grateful to speak with a lot of, uh, uh, people in the, uh, the, the beta reading of, of this book and my previous book, Mary, which is all about, uh, someone going through perimenopause. Um, you know, it was, it was so hugely beneficial to speak with people and to hear, you know, different facets of the experiences that these, uh, these fictional characters were going through. Uh, and the, the celebrations and the joy and the, the defeats and the triumphs and just, all of it uh, and you know, all in the effort of not just having this monochromatic kind of cliched sort of portrayal of, you know, Oh, this in your case, like this is just what it must be like to go through chemotherapy and like yep. just you sitting on a bed, staring into space. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, yeah, it's, I, I, uh, I, f I find those shades to be like incredibly important. Those, those different aspects, those different facets. Well, that's, that was what I was going to move into next was to acknowledge that there are serious topics that happen in this book, like we've been talking about, that you are very careful to approach respectfully. So if there's anybody who uh, is a potential reader who's worried, like, uh, you know, I hate it when disabilities are misrepresented, like, that's not a concern with this book. I, I have a friend who... Um, through junior high went from, you know, ha you know, having no problems to by the time he was in high school being permanently in a wheelchair. And so like disability is something that as a child, I learned about firsthand. And um, so I was kind of filtering my impression of, of how you depicted that through my personal experience. And mm. yeah, it felt very authentic and it felt, um, there were things in there that I was reading it and I was like, he knows someone who's gone through a disability because there were some insights that I don't think someone who was just being careful um, would get to. Um, hmm. So 
I don't know if you do or not, but it kind of felt that way to me. It's like, that's what I would say because I saw what Adam went through, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That, that means a lot to hear. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, in, you know, continuing the idea of this is a very personal book for me. It was, uh, and I go into this in great detail in the, in the, the books afterward. Um, but yeah, this was written uh, in part to kind of explore and analyze uh, uh, the year that my wife and I went to uh, uh, went through uh, prior to <laughs> prior to the writing of this book, pretty much. Uh, and while I was writing the first draft, the uh, uh, we had a series of just incredibly. Uh, heartbreaking deaths. I'll, I guess I'll, uh, I've given this spiel before, so forgive me if anyone is listening to me uh, talk about this book for a second time and has heard this already, but for new listeners, this is like the, the little rundown of uh, what inspired this book. In 2021, uh, in January, on, on this, the morning of the 6th, appropriately enough, uh, but like before yeah. the, the <laughs> insurrection went down, this was like at like three or four in the morning, my wife's mom died. Then 13 days later, my mom died. Then a couple months later, one of my wife's best friends died. Then a couple months later, our cat died. Then the next day, our dog died. Then a couple of months after that, a big job opportunity of mine fell through. And then a couple of months after that, like in December, right before the year could end, my dad died very suddenly. Um, and so, uh, and and throughout all this, like we we had to uh, uh, reconcile with the fact that we weren't going to be able to have biological kids of our own, which we'd been planning on, and Worst of all, my uh, my wife was dealing with a sudden, out of the blue, debilitating chronic pain that happened like a f- it started a few months before the the world shut down, uh, and just got worse and worse and worse to the point where like she was bedridden for months and months and months, couldn't get out of bed without just shrieking agony. Uh, and before they died, like right up until they died, our dog and our cat also, which who were, you know, incredibly old, but had these very complicated medical conditions and were incredibly needy. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, our dog required medication all the time and was dealing with canine dementia and kidney issues and stuff like that. So like she would only sleep for, uh, she would sleep like, during the day for a couple of hours, but then every 15 minutes she had to go for a walk because she would start freaking out and like pawing and peeing everywhere and, and yelping. And it was just awful. Uh, and that would continue until like midnight. And then she would wake up and it would start at like 4 a.m. So because my wife was completely debilitated, I took care of the animals. Uh, and for like literally 18 months, I was running on four hours of sleep a night. Um, because because uh, uh, that's how much attention they needed. Uh, so I was sleep deprived in a way I'd never been before. My wife is in like total agony and misery and mourning for the life that she's had to put on hold. Doctors can't diagnose her. They can't figure out what to do. Um, so this is all happening while I was writing the, the last draft of Mary and the first draft of this book. Uh, all of which is to say those experiences are basically what this book is is trying to unpack and to yeah. uh, uh, to analyze and and metabolize. And when it comes to disability, a lot of that was what I was watching my wife go through. Uh, you know, she's a very active person, 
and uh, she's she's an actor and a very busy actor, and this just came out of nowhere, and she couldn't get it diagnosed, and it was just like unbearable pain uh, that just could not be treated, and uh, I'd sort of dealt with a similar thing growing up to in that my mom, I was raised by a single mom uh, and I was very, very, very close with her. And she had uh, MS. She had progressive MS for my entire life. And like, she was, she was someone who went from being like, you know, this, this woman from Queens who was just like so fucking powerful and proactive and, and raised two kids on a single parent part-time income. Cause she could only work <laughs> part-time. Uh, in the fucking eighties and nineties, uh, uh, and like on her own in the middle of the fucking desert. Uh, and I just had to watch her slowly and very messily. She did. She was not good at this come to terms with needing help and with disability and her body, not doing the things she needed it to do and her mind eventually not doing the things she needed to do. Uh, she needed it to do. Cause she basically got MS related dementia, like in, it started in like her late forties. Um, and so I watched her struggle with that. And I watched my wife struggle with, with these disabilities. Uh, and you know, again, like it, I, I'm not, I'm not saying any of this to like uh, elicit any sort of pity on my behalf. Like it was, it's way worse for them. Um, but like, I also got to experience what it was like to be a caretaker and how like, how challenging that is and how messy that is. And like, it's so, we were, we were just talking about how important the facets of an experience are. Like, it's so easy to just like depict a caretaker as like being good at being a caretaker. And the reality yeah. is most people who are in a caretaker position are like, I fucking hate this. Like, this yeah. is really awful. And I'm depressed and I'm frustrated and I'm feeling selfish sometimes. And also like, I'm feeling so like impotent and heartbroken that I can't do more. And it's just this really messy situation. Uh, and so I wanted this book to reflect that and to, show those moments of like what it's like to deal with a disability that aren't just, you know, like the easy I'm disabled or I'm not disabled or I'm a caretaker or I'm not a caretaker, but are instead these really messy, complicated, uh, uh, like liminal spaces. And, uh, yeah. So like that, that, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it reads authentic because that was very much the, uh, the hope and the aim of of these depictions, uh, and I, I specifically wanted Anna as a character to also be bad at being disabled, so she could have moments yeah. of frustration and mourning, and like this is not a, it's not an easy fit for her, but it's still literally the chair in which she is sitting. Like this is this is the there's no magic cure, uh, and there's no easy answers, and. Um, you know, again, like tiptoeing up to spoilers, but like I really wanted the, her journey to depict what I had heard from other people's from other people who had to use uh, wheelchairs as well. That like <laughs> this gets referenced explicitly in in the book, so this is again tiny spoiler. Um, but uh, there's this uh, this memorial for a kid who. Uh, had to use a wheelchair his whole life. And, you know, this yep. is like literally his like grave memorial shows him like springing free from the chair. Like finally in death, he's free of this horrible chair. 
and people who actually use wheelchairs, uh, I've seen comment on this that they're like, this fucking breaks my heart. Cause like, I love my wheelchair. My wheelchair is like my best fucking friend. It's the thing yeah. that like helps me do the things I want to do. I don't resent it. Uh, but I think yep. when you start, uh, as a paraplegic or when you're, when you're not, when you're able-bodied and imagine what it's like to be a paraplegic, that's what you would think. You'd think like, Oh, you hate your chair. Like that just must be like a curse to have to be in that chair. And I wanted that, that arc to be a big part of Anna's journey is like slowly realizing that like this, you know, this is a disability, but it's not, you know, it, it's just a, an obstacle. Like you, you are still, uh, you know, this incredibly powerful entity and like, aren't, uh, defined by this disability. It's just right. a part of your reality. Um, and yeah, so I, uh, uh, Again, was like I was very grateful to speak with people, to draw on uh, some of the experience I've witnessed secondhand, um, and uh, YouTube was very helpful because there are a lot of great YouTube channels that are like literally explainers for people who are finding themselves in a wheelchair for the first time and like what it's like to uh, to deal with it. And even then, after all of that preparation and all that like personal connection and stuff, even up until. Uh, the layout pass, which is like the last edit <laughs> you get. And like, you're not supposed to change anything other than like little things that like maybe uh, don't look right or like one, you know, worst case scenario, you catch like a continuity error or something like that. But I was reading the manuscript for like the fucking like seventh time. And I caught a moment where I was like, oh, that's me being able-bodied. That's me skipping over a step that she wouldn't be able to skip over, like literally physically describing her yeah. doing something that it was like, no, it's more complicated than that. Uh, and if I'm going to honor what it's like, I need to add like a paragraph. <laughs> and, you know, I, I apologized <laughs> profusely, but it was important to make sure that that was in there. Uh, yeah. For, for that authenticity, which I, again, like I hope, I hope reads to people who've been in uh, similar circumstances. Uh, because it's important to try and get right. Well, something that uh, has also come up in conversation for me recently, which um, I think is important too, is so I was talking to Daniel Krauss about Whalefall, which everybody mm. should fucking read Whalefall because that book's yeah. awesome. Um, but it's it's a situation that literally no one's been in, <laughs> right. learned, like lived to talk about. So it's not something that's relatable. But the things that that character goes through, he gets so specific about what's going on with that character that <clears throat> something about the specificity of a situation where even if it doesn't directly apply to you, it makes you think about when I was in something like that. Hmm. And so I think when you do that well, when you're telling a story, the reader is able to take this thing that you're saying and connect it to this thing that I felt and then have that kind of empathy connection where even though I've never been swallowed by a whale, like <laughs> I've felt X, Y, and Z. And because of the way he told the story, I was able to connect to that, um, which has to be, you know, difficult. But I think that when you go for that um, more specific, more personal approach, it feels more real and it's easier for, for a reader to connect with it. At least that was my, like, like I, I like the, the examples I've given of my life and, and the things that I've gone through 
way different than what happens in the book, but because mm. of the way that they were depicted, easy for me to connect myself to what was going on. So um, I think that striving for that type of authenticity and like really caring about depicting those things really goes a long way to bringing the reader along for the ride, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it with specificity. Uh, that's such a, and that is a huge challenge because uh, it's so hard to know what to depict and what not to. Because I mean, that's a challenge with any writing is you you can uh, over describe something and it becomes basically meaningless. It's like getting too close to a, a pointillistic uh, painting, <laughs> right? Uh, it's completely meaningless. But there, uh, you know, through the through the drafting stages and stuff like that. And with your editor, like ideally you're able to like shape the specific things that are evocative. Like it it immediately makes me think of uh, a moment in nestlings where, uh, and this was, you know, not something I knew going into it. And it came from watching these videos and and talking to people and stuff like that. But just the simple uh, uh, description of, what it's like to get out of a wheelchair. Like she gets on the ground and crawls around sometimes because, you know, it's a horror novel. She's got stuff she has to do on the ground. Um, <laughs> but like that's, and this wasn't the example I was talking about in the, in the, uh, in the layout past, but it was a similar uh, example where like in earlier drafts, I just said she put her brakes on and she got out of the wheelchair. And I was like, yeah, but what does that, what does that mean? And it's no, it's you have to put your non-dominant, hand down knuckles first and like stabilize yourself so you can lower yourself down and you have to like move your legs out of the way. It's not easy. Um, And uh, yeah, so describing that exactly like you're saying, like that puts you in that mindset of like, oh, this is the stuff I would have to do to do this because this person is not different than me. Uh, We're all people. And like, this is what it would be like were I in this situation. Same with Whalefall, where it's like, oh my God, the things he does to that character after a certain point. And like, you know, know. the fucking, <laughs> the melting and the, the, oh, uh. the cussing and the, it, that I've never seen a character as brutalized <laughs> as that book. Uh, and yeah, he does it so, so beautifully specific without getting bogged down in the description, but just kind of, making sure you're aware of all the steps that are happening. The, the yeah. Ikea instruction manual of what it would be like <laughs> to be digested by a whale. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's great. And that's a unique power that books have too, that like, yeah. you know, movies have their own ways of, of showing evocative specificity, but a book can just put you in that fucking place in such a way. So I love that. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about um, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. It's the scary shit and it's the, it's the building and <laughs> the building. I, I think I want to go with the building first. So the, a lot of the setup of this book is, so I, I talked about this way earlier where I kind of gave the setup of, you know, they, they got this lottery for affordable housing in this very luxurious kind of, uh, building and everything. And not too long after they kind of get start are starting to get situated. You definitely get a very, as a shorthand, I want to say Rosemary's baby kind of feel about the situation where like the, the building maybe wants something different than what our protagonists want. And, hmm. um, 
and so one of the things that I thought was really uh, I, I was looking for, I, like once it happened once or twice, I was like, ooh, I can't wait for more of these things to happen, was um, how <sighs> I guess the easiest way to say it would be that the building influenced the characters in the book. Mm. And specifically when um, like there was like a red, like an alarm was going off in their mind and something made them kind of forget it. And, and it kind of like kicked that can down the road a little bit of like, something's not right. Um, and so the way it happens is there's um, the baby's bedroom and Anna's in there at one point and something she sees makes her immediately think we need to leave. But then something distracts her and she forgets about it. And it feels like the building is influencing everybody in a way where it's kind of stacking the deck in, in its own. It's like it's the house in a casino kind of where it's like <laughs> it's set up this situation in a way where it's looking for an ideal result. And um, the the thing that I liked about that that connected with me was like there's this suspension of disbelief that you have to go in with horror where it's like, you know, any rational person at some point would be like, we need to get the fuck out of here. But what you did was give you, you, you messed with agency a little bit in that way Mm. where it was like, they didn't. um, and And I'm probably stumbling over my words here, but like, it's not like they were any less themselves, but something about the influence of the building made it harder to get to the point where it's like, something's not right. And um, it it introduced a a level of doubt or something. And so um, I I really like that type of situation where, uh, because if we're just going by straight storytelling uh, 101, you're, you hit a problem where it's like any rational person would just be like, we got to get the fuck out of here. So I think the fact that there was kind of an influence of the building and maybe it was a sound that was happening or whatever was a great way to kind of push that inevitability down the road a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, it's that great uh, conundrum of every haunted house story of like, well, why don't they just leave? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, It uh, part of that is literally just out the reality of living in New York city. Also (laughs) like uh, I've lived in plenty of apartment buildings where there are weird shit uh, going on or like the landlord is an absolute nightmare, a monster, a horrible person. Um, And, you know, moving in New York is incredibly expensive. Finding another apartment is incredibly expensive uh and uh you know also like packing is hard like there's just all these like logistical reasons where you uh you fight leaving for as long as you can <laughs> or you compartmentalize it and you just say okay this is this is the apartment where i have to deal with this uh and cuz we've all <laughs> yeah. had them and we've all lived in them probably longer than we should uh but like, you know that the next apartment's probably going to have a different problem. So it's not like you'd be leaving into, you know, you're, you'd be, you'd be removing all the bad things. You'd just be trading them for a new bad thing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when they, when they move to this apartment and these things start happening, 
not only have they just come from an incredibly traumatic living situation in their last apartment because <laughs> their landlord is uh, an, another aforementioned piece of shit, uh, and like just the sleep deprivation from having a newborn and from dealing with uh, Anna's injury and the like, you know, the the pain that's associated with that emo- emotionally and physically. Um, like none of them are making the most rational decisions right now because they're all exhausted. Uh, and they find this apartment that has a few strikes against it, but honestly has some incredible perks. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the biggest worry is that it's basically on the top floor. Uh, and, you know, if you are someone who uses a wheelchair, like what do you do if there's a fire? What do you do if there's an emergency? And there's only this one rickety uh, uh, elevator. Um, that's worrisome, but you know, sometimes you just got to take the risk because it's this, it's a luxury apartment that is affordable housing and these lotteries do exist. Um, and you know, every now and then someone, you know, wins one and it's just like a bolt of the blue. It's the, it's in the text. It's literally the flip side of the, why do bad things happen to me? Uh, Uh, There's also this theme of like, of lotteries and of, you know, one in a million shots and stuff like that. Uh, and this is very much one of them. Like sometimes good things happen and you just don't fucking know. You can't prepare for it. Uh, and sometimes they happen at the wrong time. Uh, so they take this apartment and and some weird things start to happen. But, you know, uh, most of the stuff too is, is it doesn't need any sort of supernatural uh, explanation as to why it doesn't send them running for the hills because it's just like, what a... All of our savings are gone. We can't afford to move to a new place. We'd have to find a new place. That's impossible. And like, maybe I am just imagining the things that are happening right now because I am sleep deprived. Like there's those sort of things that are, uh, that are at play in these characters' heads too. So um, I, I, I also love horror that's like that. And I love, one of the things I love about New York horror, uh, New York City horror, <laughs> is that like... You have all of the tools that every other protagonist in a horror story wants. Like you, you have cell reception. <laughs> you have the police like a block away. You have witnesses around you. You're surrounded by people. Uh, bu- businesses don't even close in the middle of the night. Like there's a place you can run to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what happens when those aren't enough? What happens when when those don't? Uh, save you like there are there are supernatural elements at play in this building but there are also very real uh uh like urban civic forces at play too like uh it's a very wealthy building full of very rich people and so when they want the police to ignore a thing the police will ignore that thing because they're rich like it doesn't even need to be a monster uh, and so like those sort of <laughs> elements are at play too. Like you can, you can call the cops and say, Hey, come and help me. And they'll be like, what's your address? Yeah. We don't, we don't deal with that, bu- that building. Like that's just not something we're going to do. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, that is, that is a big part of the, the menace is that again, like we're talking about very cosmic things. Uh, and that's like just just shy of cosmic is just the, the forces of your own body and your own perceptions and the city in which you're living all working against you too. So God damn, that's just so much better uh, than I even interpreted it. Uh, so now, 
now having spoken to you about that, like it, it makes me appreciate. And, and obviously because you, you're, you, you've lived in New York city, like this makes sense to you. But so yeah. I, I think this is almost like a disability <laughs> thing. Had I watched a, like, this is what living in New York city is like, I may have understood it differently. Um, but yeah, man, that's great. That's a great point. Like, and I've gone through that recently, like the last apartment I lived in for like the whole winter, my heat didn't work. And mm. so like I was using like floor standing heaters to like heat Oof. my, and, and I always thought it was funny that my girlfriend was so much more upset about it than I was, <laughs> but it's exactly what you're saying. Like we find ways to endure shit that, you know, it, you know, maybe is more than would be expected. So that, yeah. that, Totally makes sense now. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and then you, when you are on the other side of it, you look back and you're like, what? That was fucking Fuck. horrible. Like, why yeah. was I putting up with that? <laughs> it's like, great. I have, I don't have to worry about my heating or, or, or air conditioning now. And it's like, why did I fucking live through that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Scary shit. I will say, <laughs> so like, it's a horror book. It's, it's very much a horror book. And, um, there's, I, I don't know. Uh, so is there a favorite part for you? Like when it comes to scares or, hmm. or creatures or, or anything in this book, like how you depicted something like, I think one of the things for me that was, was, was kind of my favorite part was playing with the idea of um, uh, things happening that shouldn't be happening but then there was just some goddamn overt fucked up stuff happening. So like, and obviously this is where we can't talk about stuff without spoiling stuff, but like that next door apartment, practically <laughs> everything that had to do with the apartment next door was like real extreme. And um, so for listeners who we're not going to spoil anything, I will say that the horror elements of this book are also very effective. Oh, thank you. That's good news. <laughs> That's my favorite kind of news. But what, yeah, what do you, what, what are your, is there something you had fun writing or like, is there a, like a part that we can talk about that like, or, or, or inspiration that made you want to do some of the things you did? Like what really jazzed you about the horror, or the scary or yeah. the gross of the elements of the book? Uh, it, it's a, uh, this is a slight spoiler, but I, I feel like people can intuit this uh, just based on everything we've already say, said. But it is uh, it, essentially a monster story. There's a monster at play. Uh, and I fucking love monsters. I love writing about monsters. I love I love monster lore and stuff like that. And this is based in, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's never fully stated that this is actually accurate. Uh, but uh, the way that characters kind of understand... Uh, and articulate what they're dealing with is through Jewish mythology and Jewish lore. So it's a, a Jewish monster, um, which is very fun. Um, but uh, I knew going into it, even before I like got to the heavy shit and like the personal shit, like just when it was still in its conceptual phase, but even before the bad shit had even happened to me, <laughs> uh, 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 I knew that this was going to be a... Uh, a combination of Rosemary's Baby and Salem's Lot. Those are my two comps that I was always working from. Um, and this dates back to when I first had the idea for this story, which was in like, 
I don't know, 2014, 2015 or something like that. Because, and it was literally because I was making a, I just made a movie, a horror movie. That's a ton of fun that I highly recommend people check out called They Will Outlive Us All, uh, which was written by a friend of mine, directed by a friend of mine. Uh, I'm one of the leads in it. It's a fun, like slacker horror comedy set in an apartment building in New York City uh, with giant cockroaches. And I was just trying to think of a project that this team could work on again. Uh, and so I knew it had to be something that was set in like one of our apartments and was like a very small cast. Uh, and so that's where the, this idea first came of like, oh, okay, this couple gets a building, uh, gets an affordable uh, apartment in a luxury building and things go wrong. Um, and uh, I, I loved how contained it was. I loved how efficient it was and economical mm-hmm. it was. And Rosemary's Baby was like the obvious comp to jump off of for there. Um, but the problem with trying to combine Rosemary's Baby and Salem's Lot is that one is a very contained, paranoid, like 70,000 word short thriller. And then the other one is a fucking Stephen King panoramic small town ensemble <laughs> cast based off of Dracula. Like it's a big sprawling story. Uh, and so like they're, they're kind of at odds with each other structurally. And the earlier drafts of Nestlings um, were a little messier because I really was trying to lean into an ensemble cast a little bit more. Uh, There were some side characters that we had to say goodbye to in the edits. Um, But to answer your question, then, like the the things that I most enjoyed are there are occasion there are occasional moments where we see what is going on through another character's perspective, usually a character that's just being introduced for the purposes of this chapter. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really get to honor the Salem's Lot kind of vibe. Most of the story is just about Anna and Reed and Charlie. Uh, but every now and then for just like a little chapter, just a little vignette, we see somebody else experience this building too. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Again, probably a spoiler, but probably intuitable because they're not connected to the main characters. That also means they're expendable. So we get to like have horrible <laughs> things happen to them, uh, which I really enjoy uh, and get to see like other other sides of the ominous forces that are at work corrupting Anna and Reed and Charlie. Um, so that was a ton of fun. That's something you like you don't get in Rosemary's Baby because Rosemary's Baby is so streamlined and so just about Guy and Rosemary. Uh, and so this was nice to actually have like some additional, uh, lenses on what is going on. Uh, so I loved that. And I think that also, you know, as, as you, uh, have already alluded to with the, the cold open of the, of the novel too, like when you have little glimpses of those, it's that Hitchcockian idea of, uh, you know, if people are having a conversation and a bomb goes off, that's startling. That's, that's scary in a way. But if you know that there's a bomb under there and you like get to see that bomb ticking, right. then you are that much more on edge for what's going to happen to these characters. And having those little side chapters, those little ensemble grace notes really helps you see the bomb that is, that is about to go off for, for our main cast. That's a good point. And yeah, you definitely made good use of that. And um, yeah, the couple, the few, the few times that like it's um, from perspectives of, of less important characters, like that's when you really did get to kind of like get happy with the crazy, creepy <laughs> scary stuff. So 
That's a really good point. And well done, not spoiling anything, but here's what I, I, I <laughs> Thank you. I try, I try. <clears throat> I didn't realize that there was a Chekhov's elevator kind of situation until, <laughs> <laughs> until I realized it. There's a point in the book where it's like, oh, um, because there's like also, so in this building, there's the, the elevator that you mentioned, but then there's also a staircase and one of, and, and I highlighted some stuff and most of it is like stuff that would spoil things. So I can't really quote stuff while we talk, but there was a moment where you referred to the staircase as it felt like almost like a spine, like the way you were looking down, it was like one of those staircases you could see down and down and down. And it was like vertebral or something. There was a word that you use. There was a way that you described that where I was like, fuck man, that is so good. And um, <laughs> so whenever people are reading it and get to that point, like, please just appreciate there was, there's definitely moments in the book where the way you describe something was just so like vivid, but also like kind of like annoyingly accurate. And that was like one of them. <laughs> it was like, of course, that's what it looks like. And and it adds to the exact kind of mystique you were going for. So there was definitely moments where I was like, fuck, that was really good. And that was one of them. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's very kind. <laughs> um, zooming out a little bit, and this is something that I've been trying to think about more recently when I talk to authors is kind of like what you hope people get out of the book. So I talked to someone a little while ago, Adam Godfrey. He has a... a novella called narcissus oh yeah i'm dying to read that yeah it's like great cover yeah the covers well here since you said it it's right next to me um it's shortwave publishing does the best fucking covers yeah and i think the guy that runs it is actually like the one who does the covers but so i was talking i was i was talking to adam about this and um it's just a fucking really entertaining, creepy, scary story. And it's not long. It's, you know, 100 pages, 80, 90 pages, whatever. It's a quick novella. But when we were talking about it, he just really wanted to write an entertaining, scary story. He didn't have any bigger aspirations. <laughs> and you know what? Great. Because it's fucking, it worked. But sometimes there are themes that go deeper. So, you know, we talked about disabilities. There's definitely grief. Um, in different forms, there's the challenges of parenthood and it's just kind of like, um, almost like a relentless piling on of trauma. Uh, so outside of wanting people to be entertained by your book, is there something that like you would hope, like if they walked away from this book feeling this way, that that would be good. Like that's like, oh man, good. I'm glad they got that. Hmm. Damn. That's a good question. Um, cause yeah, I think honestly the the entertainment factor is the most important thing like yeah we we talked about very heavy things there's there's a huge uh element of anti-semitism and and what it's like to be jewish in this book too um that that i really wanted to explore and articulate um it's obviously not pro anti-semitism but what it's like to deal with anti-semitism fuck a necessary Uh, clarification maybe in these days god damn (laughs) lest anyone know and uh, i have been dealing with this my whole life but uh despite the fact that my last name is cassidy i am jewish uh um but that that's a a big element of it too uh but ultimately i just want it to be a, a an entertaining diverting 
uh, read. Like that's one of the things I love most about horror is that like you can deal with really heavy shit, but you know, package it in a way that's just like propulsive and entertaining. And you might not even like realize it uh, as you are, uh, as you're consuming it, that like you're actually thinking about, you know, heavy shit. Like, you know, Stephen King wrote the shining about how much he hated his children when he was an alcoholic. And like, you, you read The Shining and you, like, maybe you're like, wow, this feels really personal, but mostly you're just like, I got to find out what's happening to Wendy and Jack and blah. <laughs> uh, right. So like, that's, that's obviously the goal. That's the most important job. Um, but yeah, I, I guess if, if I succeed on that front and I get like a little, a little gravy on, on the side, uh, I think, I want people to come away from it, you know, as a horror reader, I want to inflict a little bit of trauma, like just a little, a little uh, harmless (laughs) bit of trauma. Uh, My previous book, Mary, has has made some people afraid to uh, get in their bathtub. And that makes me very happy. (laughs) Uh, And this book, I hope it makes you look at buildings differently uh, and feel, you know, even if you don't live in New York City, um, which every now and then I have to remember most people don't because uh, it's a very solipsistic <laughs> place to live. Uh, but even if you don't live in the most congested city in the country, I hope when you are in your, uh, in your downtown area or even in, in safely in the suburbs and you're just looking at houses uh, that can be kind of spread out, I hope there is that realization of like, oh, something is going on in there that I don't know about and that the private lives of my neighbors and of my peers are very strange and inscrutable (laughs) things. And literally the buildings themselves might have more going on than you think. Like there are, wherever you're listening to this, if you're in a building right now, there are things living in the walls that you're not aware of uh, that are squirming and fucking and eating and shitting and they're, it's happening right now and you are not privy to it, but you are right next door to it. Um, and so I hope, <laughs> I hope that that's a thought you can't unthink for a little while after, uh, after reading this book. All right. So that inspires me to tell a story. <laughs> uh, oh yes. But, and I think that you'll, you'll appreciate this. So, uh, f- for a short couple of years, I lived in Vermont in a small town in Southern Vermont. And, um, for anybody who knows anything about Vermont, a lot of their towns are really old. So like mm-hmm. established in like the 1700s and there's churches everywhere. And it's just like real old feeling. And I was living in this like small town in, in Southern Vermont. And I was living in this really old building where the building was old enough where it had, it had an elevator, but around it was this, like, at least for the first floor, the stairwell that went up this five-story building was marble. And the marble had, like, foot, you know, like, worn out. Like, you'd see in, like, you know, the, you know, Tower of Pisa or whatever. Like, the, oh. the, they were, the marble was so old that, like, they were, like, footstep kind of worn into it. And um, very unassuming place, boring. Nothing really ever went wrong. Um, and there was this guy who lived there who was like a maintenance man, kind of like you could tell he was getting cheaper rent because, 
he helped out around the building or whatever. Hmm. And um, one day I get in the elevator and he's wearing a shirt that I also had. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. He's wearing a shirt that I had, but I didn't want to talk to this guy. I just didn't want to talk to this guy. He gave me a, I had a vibe about this guy and then um, didn't think about it. And then like weeks go by and finally I'm like, I haven't seen that shirt in a while. (laughs) And, and I, I finally put two and two together. That guy was wearing my shirt. And so I had to do this thing in my head where I was like, he has access to all of the apartments in the building. Is this guy going through people's stuff? Is there like a less, like, is there a more innocent explanation? But like, there was this moment where I was like, what is happening to me? (laughs) It was just this like thing that happened in my building, but because this is an old building in an old town and a weird dude, it's so easy to just like, think like, is this guy trying to like slowly take over my life or something? Like first he's wearing my shirt. Then this next thing happens. And like, so it was like, yeah, um, it was like this creepy, creepy moment. Finally, I came around to the very rational explanation that probably like it fell out of my laundry basket in the laundry room. And, <laughs> and the guy was like, it fits, you know, like, and then that was it. But you know, there was a That's moment where chilling. I was like, yeah, like, the moment I realized that I no longer had that shirt really freaked me out for a minute. And so <laughs> those types of things were like the, the building was the thing that really like sold it. If it was just like I was at, I saw a guy at the laundromat, it wouldn't be such a good story, but because right. it was this building, that's what really sold it to here. me. That something was wrong. So. Holy yeah. shit. I love that. <laughs> I, I feel like you, you did what you came to do. Like, uh, it is a very entertaining book. And I would say that when you kind of said Rosemary's baby meets Salem's lot for anybody who's listening, who's considering reading this book, if you like either of those stories, absolutely. You're going to enjoy this a lot. Um, I would say that one of the things it did for me was it just let me kind of think about um, how, yeah, we all go through shit and, um, what we choose to do about it kind of really matters. So it's, it's almost like it helped me kind of put things in, of my own life into a, in, into a perspective where it was like, okay, we all are experiencing these things and we all together kind of have shit we go through. Um, and I'm really proud of like overcoming things in my life. So it did kind of help me kind of put myself through the lens of the book and, and, and kind of pat myself on the back about the things where, okay, maybe, maybe it was hard and I got through it and I should probably be happy about that. So there was a little yeah. bit of that going on too, when I got done with oh, the yeah. book. So yeah. Yeah. That's the that. sauce. That's the extra sauce. That's <laughs> great to hear there. Yeah. There you, you saying that reminds me that there is like actually, I guess like a, a more positive lesson I would hope that people take from this book in that uh, there are a lot of decisions that are made that turn out to be disastrous in this book. And they're made because the character that makes them doesn't want to be a burden on somebody else. And they're making them because the it's easier than like talking about their feelings or something like that. 
Yeah. Uh, this is I. My whole background is as a is, is an, as an actor is in Shakespeare, and there's so many Shakespearean tragedies that could be solved with just one conversation. If these characters just like sat down and were like, "Hey, what's going on?" Uh, and this this story definitely comes from that kind of mold too. Like if if these people just like swallowed their pride or were just willing to be vulnerable a little bit or embarrassing or redundant, you know, even though they're talking to someone they love and someone they trust with their life and safety, they just don't want to be a burden. They don't want to. They don't want to uh, be accused of being weak or you know any of those things. Um, if they had just been willing to put that aside and talk about their issues, uh, the bad things that happen most likely wouldn't happen. So talk about your shit. <laughs> be vulnerable. Um, be, be, be honest about the things you're going through and, and proud of the things you've survived. I've always felt like the times that I actually do that, I definitely feel like that's the best choice afterward. Like yeah. doing the hard thing and talking about the thing is always the best choice. So it's the, it's I think the that's hardest just good advice thing. in general. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, talking logistically. So this book comes out, is it Halloween day? Halloween day, October 31st. Hmm, look at that look. That's cool. Um, yeah. There's part so, yeah. of me that's like, I kind of wish it was October 24th because the normies stop paying attention to horror on Halloween, but I think we're <laughs> going to be okay. I'm very happy that it's a yeah. Halloween baby. Yeah, it's good. Um, well, my whole thing is order it now. So like, um, I, I love pre-orders. I love go to your library and tell them to get this book because you want to read it like that kind of yes, stuff. Please. So like, cool. So yeah, we'll definitely have, I have, I always have links for, for pre-orders. Obviously we encourage people to engage with their libraries and have their library stock it if possible. Um, outside of nestlings, is there a project you're working on that would be uh, what's next in line or are we taking a little break? Uh, I do not know the meaning of breaks. What are you crazy? Uh, no, I just uh, delivered the next book. Um, well, I didn't deliver the book. I delivered the first draft. Uh, so I'm working on the second draft now. Um, but that comes out. Uh, I think it has to come out in 2025, which feels like forever. Um, <laughs> but the book is the, uh, the, the book is basically done. It's just got a couple of polishes and revisions uh, that it needs. Um, but I'm very excited about that. That's going to be a, a big change of pace. That's a, uh, um, I've been teasing it by, by saying that it's, it's my attempt at writing an airport thriller, like the sort of thing you would pick up in the, <laughs> Ooh, in the nineties wow. in an airport. Yeah. It's, it's a combination of it, Terminator two Firestarter, and the twilight zone. Like it's, and it's just like action packed, uh, horror and it's Holy very crap. fucked up. Yeah, I'm very excited for people to read that. So yeah, it's very different from the the '70s paranoia slow burn of Nestlings. Um, but th so yeah, that uh, uh, I think comes out in. Wait, I haven't announced it yet, so hopefully I can say this. But uh, uh, I'm sure it's fine that it comes out in like early 2025. I've got that novella that I mentioned uh, that we're going to try and find a home for. So hopefully that'll come out in 2024. So I'll have I'll have something on that calendar year, um, and actually a couple of uh, uh, chat books with uh, Shortwave, which I'm very excited nice. for, very cool. uh, that are going to come out in 2024, I think. Um, yeah, and then other than that, I'm I'm outlining the the next book, uh, the the Needful Things inspired next book, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, 
there's always something. There's always something in the works, much to my well, wife's chagrin. I, I kick myself for not having a podcast while Mary came out because um, I was listening to you and, and Neil talk about it on Talking Scared. It just sounds so fucking good. And um, Oh, thank you. So, like, if anybody reads this or doesn't want to wait until nestlings, obviously they can go pick up Mary as well and, and, and enjoy that too. So plenty of, of Nat to, to get, to get <laughs> plenty of Nat to be had. Let's say that. <laughs> all right. Well, all um, the Nat hey, you could want all the Nat and, and more maybe. Um, <laughs> hey, I want to thank you for taking a couple of hours out of your time and oh, yeah. um, making your, letting your food get a little cold while we wrap up. Um, I really appreciate it. It's an awesome book. I think everybody should go check it out. And um, I just, I want to talk to you again. So the next time, next time we have something to talk about, I might do, do one of those things where I rope you into just talking outside of promoting something for you. Like let's just do some more talking. Cause obviously we've got a lot to say. So um, <laughs> Hey man, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>